This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features 100,000 titles, including Walter Isaacson's biography, Albert Einstein, His Life and Universe, narrated by Edward Herman, and Stephen Hawking's The Theory of Everything, narrated by Michael York. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on April 2nd, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... No, it's not going to be exactly the same bat, but there are going to be a lot of them and they're going to be alive. And they're going to be continuing to behave like bats, expressing their batness, living and loving and eating insects the way bats should. That's Kent Redford. He's a conservation biologist. After completing his doctorate at Harvard, he postdoced and served on the faculty at the University of Florida. Starting in 1993, he worked with the Nature Conservancy, which he left in 1997, to join the Wildlife Conservation Society. Last year, he started his own firm, Archipelago Consulting. Redford recognized that synthetic biologists are creating transgenic organisms and altering the sources of natural products to an extent that conservationists may be unaware of and that synthetic biologists may not realize the environmental issues of some of their work. So he organized a conference that starts April 9th at Clare College in England titled How Will Synthetic Biology and Conservation Shape the Future of Nature? We talked about the issues the conference will address at Archipelago Consulting in Irvington, New York, about 20 miles up the Hudson from the city. Big conference coming up. Unfortunately, it's in England, unfortunately for me, in New York, but... Fortunate for people in Cambridge. Tell us a little bit about that conference. Yes, it's the, uh, the meeting is going to take place the 9th to the 11th of April, so just a few weeks from now. It's going to be held in Clare College in Cambridge in the UK. And the impetus behind uh, holding the meeting was to bring together two communities of practice which had never met each other previously. Uh, yet they are about to meet, meet each other in a very significant fashion. On the one hand is the conservation community, which has been practicing modern-style conservation for a 100 years or so. And on the other hand is the synthetic biology community, which really is a matter of years, if a decade or so old. And neither community really knows about the other one. And yet they are headed on paths that are running in towards one another very soon, if not already starting. The conservation community, in my experience, is has been largely backwards-looking. That is, we, because I am one of them, are worrying about what has happened in the past and trying to prevent extinctions. And we have largely been riding through our lives, bemoaning what we've lost, As a result of sitting in the back of the bus looking out the back window, we are always surprised when new things happen because nobody told us about them until they hit us in the back of the head. Everybody else on the bus who was looking forward knew they were coming and had had conversations and thought about it, but it was news to us. My favorite example of this is the biofuels, the rise in biofuels, which was really largely unknown in the conservation community until... All of a sudden, it broke around us, and there became this tremendous rush to try and figure out what that meant for conservation. So as in my three decades in the field, I am tired of this happening and work with colleagues 
in an attempt to make sure that this time we're looking out the front window of the bus instead of the back window of the bus. And out of that front window, we are watching the rapidly oncoming vehicle of synthetic biology. And so the meeting was designed as a first introduction to the two fields, one field to the other, to attempt to get the conservation community to be aware of these developments and to start to consider the potential implications. And at the same time, talk to the, talk to the synthetic biology community and get them to think about the values that are biodiversity and conservation based that may be impacted by their practice but also to see whether or not there are some things that they could do to help us with intractable, with intractable problems that we have been unable to address ourselves. Can you give me some specifics of the problems you're talking about, the intractable ones? Well, I can tell you my favorite one. I, I have no idea whether it would work, but it's still my favorite. And that is the that the really unfortunate situation that is being faced by amphibians, particularly frogs, not all species, but a lot of species of frogs. And um, another issue, similar issue being faced by bats, colonial nesting, roosting bats in the U.S., which is the white nose syndrome. Both of the diseases, the chytrid fungus with frogs and this white nose disease with bats, are fungal diseases. And the, the bat numbers have just collapsed in really unfortunate fashions as they have been dying in the roost from this disease. In the case of frogs, a whole set of species has gone extinct and many more are threatened with extinction because of these fungal diseases. We in the conservation community have really been able to do almost nothing about this except document the extinctions and the population declines. There have been some attempts to bring in colonies into captivity and try to prevent the complete loss of the species, but largely it's really a rear guard action. So my hope would be that there might be available through the techniques that synthetic biologists use a way to address these fungal disease problems. Now, when I try this out on my colleagues in the conservation community, they put their hand to their mouth and say, oh my God, I can't believe you're actually proposing releasing a new genetically modified organism. And my answer is, yes, that is what I am proposing if it's feasible and it makes sense. Because in the absence of that action, we stand to lose this tremendous number of species and populations that are not only of importance to humans, but important on their own right. And I don't know, but that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping we can talk to with the synthetic biology community. And since they don't know us and they don't know our problems, I seriously doubt they have even thought about this issue. Mm -hmm. And that's the, those are the kinds of conversations that I'm really hoping will take place at the meeting in early April. Just to pursue this a little bit, um, what theoretically, what kind of altered organism are you talking about? You're talking about doing some of the bats, doing some of the fungus? Well, I'm not a synthetic biologist. Right. Um, I'm known for having ideas long before any data are available. <laughs> so to me, the important thing is to ask the question of people who know the techniques mm -hmm. and to see whether or not they are interested in able to develop tools to address them. But in this case, it, it may be that 
changing the bats and the fungus might both be possible. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it appears that uh, the white nose syndrome fungus is found in Europe, and it doesn't kill European bats. Right. And it does kill North American bats. So that suggests that there may be a genetic basis that has a genetic basis for the resistance of European bats that might be something that could be available to use with these bats. I don't know. I, as again, what I want to do is get, use that as an example of the kind of question right. that we would like to pursue with this new community. So best case scenario, there's a gene for resistance in the European species and we find that gene and insert it into American bats and let them breed so that they don't, with the new gene, so that they don't succumb to the disease. Yes, and, you know, I know what the immediate response is from my colleagues and others, which is, oh, my God, then it's not going to be the same bat. Right. And my answer is going to be, no, it's not going to be exactly the same bat, but there are going to be a lot of them, and they're going to be alive, and they're going to be continuing to behave like bats, expressing their batness, living and loving and eating insects the way bats should, and who cares if it has this other gene? I don't. You don't, but a lot of conservationists do, as you say. And there's almost a, a, a fly in amber kind of notion that everything has to stay exactly the way it is or it's no good. Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, image you use because it was the mosquito in amber that was the start of Jurassic Park. Right. <laughs> so you may st- you may be stuck in the amber, but that doesn't mean you're going to remain inert. Uh, you know, and not that not that there's going to be DNA to right, make dinosaurs right, right. taken out of mosquitoes in amber. But uh, the point is that our notion of what is hybrid and what is pure is really a a human value based view of the world, which is not manifested. In most species, that is, purity largely doesn't exist. The notion of what a species is, when you look carefully at the definitions, frequently involves introgression, uh, that is, genes coming from other species and mixing with this. And I gave, uh, I was invited to give a presentation 10 days ago at a meeting that uh, Revive and Restore, the organization put together with National Geographic Society called De Extinction. And it was held at the National Geographic Society. Anyway, my talk was called Tainted Species with a Question Mark. And it it raised this exact question of what it is about humans that makes us really relish and desire to maintain discrete categories while sanctioning anything that falls between those categories. Yet simultaneously and against that background, still embracing things that are that are hybrid. Mm -hmm. And this is such a, a dominant human position that uh, the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss wrote a book called The Raw and the Cooked, which is exactly about this quality in humans. So that when we ask this question about bats and hybrids, we have to be very careful about contrasting our own desire to order the world in ways that allow us to deal with it with the way the world itself has self-organized. And there is nowhere that this comes out more clearly than in this question of hybrids and hybridicity. One of the things that I did with the Wildlife Conservation Society was help lead the reestablishment of the American Bison Society, 
on its 100th anniversary in 2005. And one of the major issues that we dealt with and that bison conservationists in North America are dealing with is the fact that many bison that look like bison and act like bison are defending their offspring from wolves, are following fire to eat grass, are interacting with native species, have cattle genes in them. Mm-hmm. From a period in the late 1800s when uh, some of the cattle ranchers who, in fact, along with the American Bison Society, were responsible for preventing bison from going extinct, worked on crossbreeding. So as the animals increased, as bison increased in number to the current 500,000 or so, many of those animals have cattle genes in them. The question is, what difference does that make? Mm-hmm. And there are people who steadfastly maintain that impure bison should be eliminated And I personally and we at the American Bison Society and at WCS took the position that if there's only very small percentage of involvement of cattle genes and the bison are managed in ways that allow them to express their bisonness, then we are all in favor of them. It's almost a eugenics-like attitude. Well... I don't mean that in the sense of racial purity. I understand that, but... You look right now at the um, current cases being reviewed as we speak by the U.S. Supreme Court about what makes proper marriage. And you look at the eugenics debate, you look at miscegenation laws, you look at religious intolerance. You are looking at this basic human desire to, to create discrete categories, to sanction things which cross over between those categories. It should come as no surprise to us that that desire on the part of humans extends into the world of conservation. Yeah. Um, just to go back a little to the, this um, scenario that I that I mentioned about, you know, if there were a, a single gene in the European species that offered, that, that conferred resistance in the bats, and we could uh, insert that into the American species, you know, there, there might be some conservationists who didn't like it, but if a mutation happened randomly that gave the North American species the exact same gene and then the selection pressure of the presence of the disease stabilized it in the population, conservationists presumably wouldn't have any problem with that. Well, that's no, that's absolutely true. And even more interesting is the fact that the work that is being done on whole genomes is showing us that that genomes are made up of genes from many other taxa anyway. So you look at our own genome, Homo sapiens, and it turns out we've got Denisovans, one of the early hominid genes. We've got Cro-Magnon, sorry, Neanderthal genes. Even more provocative, 9% of the human genome is said to consist of viral genes that came Mm -hmm. from viruses. So exactly what is the worry about moving a gene from European bats? So that we just have to look at what the background nature of what is going on and then ask what the intervention sits in relationship to that. And then on a completely different front, we have to ask what this term is the counterfactual. That is, what would happen if we didn't take action? And then you ask, if we didn't take action, do we like that outcome better than if we did take action? And and to me, if this can be managed in ways that seem reasonable, I have no compunction about changing the genetic structure in a tiny way of bats in North America in order to allow them to continue to be bats. Now, what do we have to, as conservationists, then watch out for? What, when, do, when do you 
where do you put the line where there's stuff that we shouldn't be doing? I don't have an answer to that. Um, I, I don't know. But I think that what why I am asking my colleagues to do is to recognize that the answer to that question is only partially a science answer and that much of it is a human values. It's answer. almost an aesthetic choice sometimes. It's an aesthetic choice and it's out of a sense of what you consider appropriate enough. This issue is, has come up in the in endangered species legislation and the question of whether or not we should be practicing what is called genetic rescue, where you incorporate genes from non-local populations in order to allow the local population to persist. That was done with the Florida panther, where because of inbreeding, small population size, there was a sense that they were going extinct as a subspecies. And this is a subspecies level, uh, and that it would be all right to introduce uh, panthers, mountain lions, pumas from Texas in order to alter the gene pool of the Florida panthers and allow them to a chance to survive. That was done and it appears to have been successful. So is that a problem? Are you worried about the loss of purity? Or do you celebrate the fact that, uh, that there are now healthier populations of Florida panthers? And here in the Northeast, the northeastern subspecies of peregrine went extinct. Hmm. And the the birds that were reintroduced came from six or seven different subspecies of peregrines, including all the way from Australia. Some of these birds were introduced as adults, and some of them were bred with, with subspecies from Europe or the Pacific to create offspring that were released. And we've got peregrines just all over the northeast, and people celebrate seeing mm-hmm. them. These huge gatherings of people staring at... At, at birds when they show up, harassing pigeons and, and raising babies and being peregrines. Well, they're mongrels. <laughs> Does that matter? But it doesn't matter to me. I'm just happy to have peregrines. And back. you're a mongrel too. I'm a mongrel too. I, you know, my, yeah, that's right. Neanderthals and viruses in my genome. And I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. I saw a peregrine at uh, the, the Rye Marshlands. Yeah. And it probably flew up from, I don't know, the Whitestone Bridge. In the Bronx, connecting the Bronx and Queens. And it's the only time I've seen a peregrine. I haven't been looking for them very hard, but it's the only time I've happened on a peregrine. And it's a real thrill. And, but, you know, I thought it was just a peregrine. I had no idea that, you know, it might have some Australian genes in it. Well, does it matter? It, not to me. It didn't matter to you. You saw it and you relished that sight and the way it was acting. And to me, that's reasonably good. Now, but let me ask you one thing about the bison I mean, yeah. as a case. Because even if you could have the pure bison again, the habitat that they lived in doesn't exist anymore. So sometimes we, we look at the organism outside of its context, and it comes up better when um, there's talk recently about uh, the possibility of resurrecting the passenger pigeon. But the passenger pigeon has such a unique lifestyle and life history where you need millions of them and they need a particular habitat that the question then comes up if you could bring back one passenger pigeon you know what is it it's not it it doesn't live the way that they lived well okay let's start with bison which is where you started and we could then go to passenger pigeons Mm -hmm. so this species of bison um bison bison 
was only one of the species that existed in North America in the Pleistocene. There were much bigger bison and medium-sized bison, and only this is the only one that made it. The ones that used to be there are, were bigger than the ones that are... Uh, much bigger. Wow. Yeah, much bigger. Um, and they're gone, and this one has survived. But this one doesn't live in the same place that it lived in in the Pleistocene. Right. So even if humans hadn't almost eliminated them in North America, they still wouldn't be living in the same place they'd been living mm-hmm. then. So this notion about there being a or an habitat and that if you don't have that habitat, then you don't have the species fails to understand that the word habitat means the, the, the biophysical situation in which an animal finds itself. So the word habitat has to be modified by what species you're talking about. So if you have bison living relatively in the wild, then you have bison habitat. So their habitat is there because there they are. Mm-hmm. And besides, additionally, bison ranged all the way from Alaska to central Mexico. So they ha- they are not specific to any particular kind of habitat, but they can survive, the species can survive in very different um, climactic and vegetation zones from high mountains to deserts in the southwest. They're not just on Ted Turner's ranch. No, he's got a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. um, but, so the, the thing about bison is that's not a good one to talk about in relationship to habitat because it has such a, a broad habitat to- tolerance. It's much more interesting as a question when you talk about organisms like the Kihansi spray toad, which the Wildlife Conservation Society has been working on breeding and releasing to the wild. And they were fine. It's a little toad beautiful little thing that, you know, would sit on the end of your thumb on nail. They're that small. And they were found only in a gorge at, below a waterfall in Tanzania. And the river was was dammed, and the spray, which came from the waterfall, which created this moist habitat where the toads were found, was eliminated. Mm-hmm. So there's a case where there really was a loss of habitat. Well, so those animals are now being reintroduced to the wild by installing artificial sprayers. Um, in order to create artificial habitat. But the animals appear to be okay, at least at this stage, in reintroducing them. So it's not clear that kind of a this notion of there is no habitat is always grounds for saying, therefore, we shouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's particularly true of passenger pigeons. For one, we know only so much about their biology. And there is a speculation about how there need, need to be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in a flock in order for them to be able to reproduce. We don't, in fact, know that. Hmm. Um, And the technologies that are being proposed now for restoring passenger pigeons involve crosswalking passenger pigeon genome into bantail pigeon. So what you end up with will not be 100% passenger pigeon. It'll be some mixture of passenger pigeons and bantail pigeons. So we don't know what that kind of animal would need. But on top of that, at the same time, there is an effort ongoing to restore the American chestnut tree, uh, largely through genetic alteration of the North American chestnut so that it's resistant to the chestnut blight. So maybe we will be restoring chestnut forests at the same time that we're trying to bring passenger pigeons back. I don't know. I don't think any of us know, but the interest is in trying to do something that provides a signal of hope 
and to enlist a new set of people with a new set of passions and technologies to try and address the serious problems being faced by those of us in conservation. Part two of my conversation with Kent Redford will be posted shortly.